At Dressember, we approach human trafficking as an intersectional issue, recognizing that there are multiple overlapping forms of systemic oppression involved. With this in mind, we created the Dressember Network, which is comprised of 20 different organizations supporting programs in advocacy, prevention, intervention, and survivor empowerment. When you support Dressember, you help dismantle trafficking holistically and in a way that prioritizes survivors' needs and voices. Make an impact today at dressember.org donate. And welcome to another episode of Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a Dressember podcast and the show about advocating for the dignity of all people. In this series, we're talking with 11 survivors of human trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation to find out what survivors wish we knew. We're your hosts, Blythe Hill and Stephanie Schindler. And in this episode, we're talking with Ann Kinsey, founder and executive director of Love Powered Life. Ann Kinsey is a trauma-sensitive neurofeedback practitioner HRV biofeedback practitioner, and trauma recovery coach. She's passionate about serving people who have experienced human trafficking, developmental trauma, spiritual trauma, abuse, and discrimination, and practitioners who work with these populations. Anne Kinsey first served people with lived experience of human trafficking at a drug rehabilitation facility in 2004. Four years later, she started a support group for expectant mothers and found that some were currently experiencing trafficking or had in the past. A few years after that, Anne volunteered at a local safe home for children who had experienced human trafficking. Anne and her family provided respite care for survivors, and in 2015, she and her family began a mentoring program called Nails on the Trail. The mentoring program served trafficking survivors through hiking and the joy of survivor-created inspirational nail art. Nails on the Trail became Love Powered Life as the vision expanded and the provision of healing services for entire families and trafficking survivors of all ages. Listen in for insight on how we can be a part of the healing process for trafficking survivors without subjecting them to re-traumatization on this week's episode of Things Survivors Wish You Knew. Well, hello, Anne. We are so glad to have you on the Thing Survivors Wish You Knew podcast. Hi, Stephanie and Blythe. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, we've been following the incredible journey that you've had um, as you walk along survivors for what seems like over 10 years now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, some of the bios that I've been reading that you started working along survivors in 2004. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, wow. I was a, I was a seminary student at the Interdenominational Theological Seminary down in Atlanta, and I did a uh, practicum where I was um, working with people who had substance use disorders. However, it ended up that a lot of them were also survivors of human trafficking. Wow. So almost two decades of making an incredible impact on the lives of survivors. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's super important that survivors are the ones like leading this movement. So there's two of your most recent endeavors that are super interesting. Uh, the first being Nails on the Trail, uh, which then evolved into Love Powered Life. Uh, would you mind... Uh, sharing more about these two incredible organizations with our listeners. 
Absolutely. So several years back, I started a little organization called Nails on the Trail. And at that time, I was working with several survivors of human trafficking, both in group home settings and individually. And we used to go hiking to kind of like clear our heads together and enjoy the outdoors. And it always seemed like we had moments of clarity during these times of hiking. Um, You know, something would feel better or a certain phrase would come to somebody that ended up being meaningful and helped them move forward in their healing. And at the same time, a lot of these folks who were younger people, teenagers, they um, would ask me if I could bring nail stuff for them. Miss Ann, can you bring nail stuff? We want to do our nails. We miss doing our nails. Can we do our nails? Please, can we do our nails? So I was like, okay. So I started bringing um, nail wraps and like nail polish and things like that. And we would sit around and do our nails after we went hiking and kind of like discuss what we had um, thought about or what had come to us on the trail that was helpful and empowering and positive and healing. And um, so that was a lot of fun. And then we kind of were able to draw some digital art into that as well, because I was able to figure out a way to get custom printed nail wraps. And so they would go on like Canva and um, do some artwork or upload pictures, um, even write little reminder words on their nails. And then we would order them. And the next time I got together, we would all do our nails and talk after a good hike. So it was just a lot of fun. It was very, very healing. Um, So during this time, I mean, that was healing in and of itself, right? But during this time, I was going through neurofeedback as part of my own healing journey. And um, the thing that was so incredible about it was that, you know, I had a lot of trauma, but the neurofeedback was able to get to the root of how that trauma affected me and impacted my life. And I was able to heal in ways that I hadn't been previously. I love therapy, talk therapy, all of that, but that alone with so much trauma wasn't quite getting me there. Um, But when I added neurofeedback into the mix, it was incredible. And I was kind of like thinking, you know, one day if I'm meant to do this, maybe I'll do this. (laughs) And um, gradually I was like, you know, I really could do this. And this is something that I could share with other survivors. Neurofeedback is very expensive. So it can be kind of difficult for survivors to access it unless they have um, a nonprofit or some kind of financial backing that can help them get the care they need. So I went ahead and filed for 501c3 paperwork. Um, The organization became Love Powered Life because our sort of goal is to create loving community with survivors of human trafficking through recovery services like neurofeedback, biofeedback, and trauma-sensitive coaching. So um, once I got the 501c3, then I started my own neurofeedback um, training and was able to get financial backing for my own training, right? (laughs) From um, 
Birchbox and then you folks have helped me as well along that journey, which I'm very thankful for. So uh, for the, about the last three years, I've been able to work with survivors of human trafficking through um, neurofeedback and it's been wonderful. Wow. What an incredible story. Um, I love talk therapy. We at Dress Ember love therapy. Um, we, you know, we super promote it to our advocates who are speaking about human trafficking regularly, you know, like people working in this sector that might be experiencing um, secondhand trauma. We are just total, total fans of how much of an impact therapy can make on someone's life. Um, I know that survivors really need complex trauma therapy modalities, which is what you at Love Powered Life. Um, I, as a layman, do not know <laughs> much about neurofeedback, um, HRV biofeedback, or this trauma-sensitive coaching. So for my benefit, um, and also for our listeners' benefits, I am hoping that you could share a bit more about uh, what these therapy modalities are and how they can be particularly helpful for treating trafficking survivors. Absolutely. Yes, Stephanie. Um, a lot of people are new to hearing about things like neurofeedback, right? Um, but the term neuro, we're talking brain, right? Feedback, brain-based feedback. So one way that we can um, get an idea of what the brain is doing is through something called an EEG. And so it's like EEG feedback. So what we do is we address patterns of dysregulation in the brain. This can be for all kinds of reasons, but with the folks that we're working with, it's usually due to the complex trauma that they have dysregulation in their brain. Um, and we're able to help the brain learn more optimal ways of functioning and become better self-regulated through placing EEG sensors on your head. Like if, if anybody's ever been to like a neurologist or a sleep study, they take a little EEG sensor and they put um, a little bit of paste on it and then they clean a spot on your head and they put it on there. And then on a screen, you can see all kinds of wiggly lines, right? And that's your brain waves. That's what your brain is doing. Um, and neurofeedback, our computer, takes those signals from the brain and makes it so the brain can see its own activity on a TV screen. Um, they're not seeing the squiggly lines. They're going to be playing a video game or watching a movie or TV show of their choice, just kind of like put their feet up, relax, enjoy the movie, and the screen will get bigger, smaller, brighter, darker, the sound, the, the volume will go up or down depending on what the brain waves are doing. So brain feedback, that goes back to the brain. The brain, without us consciously thinking about it at all, goes, aha, this is what I'm doing. I'd like to function better, thank you. And will adjust its functioning based on the feedback that it's getting and it will become better regulated. There are different kinds of neurofeedback. I practice Othmer method feedback. That's O-T-H-M-E-R, Othmer. And in that method of neurofeedback, we optimize 
the training frequency for each individual client. So every client gets a protocol that is specially designed for them and what their brain needs. So we might have some protocols where, you know, the brain gets calming and then other protocols where maybe obsessive thinking is calmed or triggerability is calmed or other protocols that address nervous system instabilities like migraines or trouble waking up in the night, things like that. So um, does that help clear that up a little, Stephanie? Oh, man. Sign me up. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I just think it's it's really cool that there is a therapy modality that doesn't seem to require like reliving traumatic experiences and thus like being able to avoid triggers, avoid re-traumatization. And it's just it seems like a nice break from what I know a lot of mental health services are for folks that are in recovery. Um, So can you tell me also about the HRV biofeedback? Yes. So HRV biofeedback, we do that through um, a modality called heart math. And uh, we use a little ear sensor that clips onto somebody's ear and then either communicates with their smartphone or if they don't have a smartphone, we have devices that they can simply hold in their hands that don't require having a smartphone because not everybody has access to that, right? Um, So it it clips right onto the ear. It reads um, what the heart rhythm is doing for the person and it measures heart rate variability. Heart math HRV biofeedback aims for something called coherence. And that's sort of like when all the systems in your body are working really harmoniously, your heart rhythm has a smoother pattern to it, like this very smooth up and down motion. Just even looking at it looks relaxing. And when we're in that state, we are releasing more of the hormone DHEA which is a very renewing healing hormone in our bodies. And that's in contrast to when we're activated or triggered and our heart rhythm, if you look at it, is going to look very jagged. (laughs) Like it looks like how we feel in that moment, right? Just jagged and all over the place. Um, And at that point, we're, we're producing a lot of cortisol in our bodies. So what heart math tries to do is tries to help us find a place between being in high activation and low activation um, and between um, renewing and depleting emotions to sort of be in a balanced place with that, like recognizing we're not going to be ever free from depleting emotions, right? We're human beings. We're going to have a full spectrum and we're not ever going to be like, we can't go through life, go through work or drive a car while we're in a super meditative state either. Um, So heart math helps people, helps people find that balanced place where our bodies are in coherence, our, our, um, Systems are working together really, really well, and we're feeling alert but calm. So, you know, we can do that through an app on the phone that, you know, has meditations with it or through the device that will show like 
red, yellow, and green coherent so people know where, where they are. And then we can teach people a variety of techniques to improve their coherence, like heart-centered breathing, where you're just breathing gently in and out through the area of your heart. Um, and then there are some other techniques like the heart lock-in technique where you breathe in and out through the area of your heart and then you activate a renewing emotion and bring breathe that in and out through the area of your heart and then you radiate that to every cell of your body and out to others. I'm super geeking out about all of this like everything that you're describing like these these modalities sound so um therapeutic. I mean, imagine that the therapy would be therapeutic, but you know, to Steph's point, like moving away from talk therapy and the re-traumatization that can come through that, but then also, so just speaking from personal experience, like I experienced some trauma in my childhood and have been a frequent flyer in talk therapy for for decades now and it just gets exhausting it's you know i am i am willing i am eager i'm proactive in my healing journey and i'm i've come to a point several times where it's like okay this is not enough it's there's the the re-traumatizing aspect there's the exhaustion aspect and so this idea of just going through other means like through your brain and your heart and your breathing as a way to really get beneath all of the um, layers of trauma and um, you know oftentimes this stuff is just really buried for good reasons you know like our our defense mechanisms serve us well in survival but then in recovery it's just a lot to unearth. And so I'm just super fascinated about these modalities and how they could be potentially life-changing specifically for survivors, but also for people like me, <laughs> like just anyone who's who's gone through any sort of trauma. Like it, that just sounds amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like I think it could be helpful just in day to day to day life for a lot of people. Heart math, neurofeedback, just improving function, having a greater sense of well-being, um, just feeling more at ease and being able to do that. Yeah. Without having to talk through it all. I mean, talk therapy goes great with it, but it makes it so much easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, trauma truly does live in the body. So it makes so much sense to attempt to heal and treat this issue uh, with your brain and with your heart. And um, I'm hoping you could share some of the ways that uh, doing neurofeedback therapy in your own life has improved your well-being. Oh my gosh. Yes. Where do I even <laughs> start? So yeah, like I used to have a lot of trouble with sleep, getting to sleep, staying asleep, having peaceful sleep. I would get interrupted sleep nightmares. All of that has really gone away. And I don't, I can like lie down in bed and just focus on my breath and fall asleep and then wake up when I'm done sleeping. And it's great because for years I did, I didn't have that ability. So to have it now is it's been really exciting and it's amazing. Um, what a difference it makes just for how I feel as I go through my day, having enough sleep is really important. Oh Yeah. 
other things are triggers that used to be there are no longer there for me. Wow. Um, so, you know, sometimes I do come across like a new trigger, but then I can do a little neurofeedback and address that and then um, move on and not have it be something that I have to worry about coming up repeatedly for me. So to be able to move through the world without worrying about um, being triggered around every corner so that I can enjoy life, right? I can go out like on a hike in the sunshine, enjoy the trees, the fresh air, not worrying that something bad is around the corner, right? Mm. Or being able to travel. Like for instance, when I went to California to do um, the first course in my neurofeedback training. And I was with my service dog. That's a whole nother story. Her name is Keiko. She's great. Anyway, I went on the plane with her to California, five and a half hour plane ride with my service dog and a plane full of people and didn't have a panic attack, you know, and then was able to go attend the training and sit and learn all day, 10 hours a day and get things out of it and learn what I needed to know. And I was able to take her to, um, to Disney while I was there and we had a great time and it was fun. It wasn't overwhelming. So, you know, a lot of that is huge. The, the reduction in triggers and then, um, also being present in the, in the present moment in a healthy way. Um, because like a lot of trauma survivors in my life, I have struggled with dissociation and I could lose time and just all of a sudden, you know, I'm doing something and then it's like three hours later and I don't know where the last three hours went. And um, that has really dissipated for me now so that that's not an ongoing daily struggle for me. And um, so I'm able to be present in my work and with my family and friends and just enjoying life. And I am so, so grateful for that. Malia Designs is a fair trade handbags and accessories brand that combines lively design, the use of recycled materials and affordable price points. Malia products are handcrafted in Cambodia and every purchase helps fight human trafficking. Malia is offering special holiday offers for all Dressember supporters. Get 20% off your entire order, including sale items, when you use code DRESSEMBER20. Again, lowercase D-R-E-S-S-E-M-B-E-R-2-0 at checkout. Malia has a wide selection of wallets, totes, handbags, storage bins, and more. Check them out today at maliadesigns.com. Yeah, those are all amazing. I mean, sleep, that's, yeah, sleep changes everything, totally. And um, really turning down the volume on your triggers or completely kind of muting those is is really amazing, too. And I imagine that that's a really rewarding journey to take other survivors on as well. Um, in your work with survivors or it, something we talk about often with our audience, um, our community, is the idea of secondary trauma, that when you're regularly exposed to someone else's trauma or traumatic experiences, that you absorb some of that trauma. Um, and I'm wondering if you can help us understand secondary trauma as as you experience it working directly with trafficking survivors and and maybe as a an add-on to that question, how you take care of yourself. Absolutely. Process. So like any time that we have the honor and privilege to be able to 
walk alongside other people when they're processing um, their stories and in particular difficult parts of their stories. We hear a lot of things um, and we see a lot of emotion in other survivors' faces. And some of that, you know, will resonate with us on a deep level. And, and that can be healthy when it's, um, you know, an empathetic exchange with somebody. And, um, and when we're in a place where we have a cushion of resiliency from which to share that empathy. And, um, and so then it can be healing for both parties in that relational exchange, right? It can be really healing and it can be empowering um, for the survivor and um, can help to um, contribute to sense of community and connection. So there is a sense in which being present to stories is, is really an incredible privilege and wonderful, but it's that cushion of resilience that I mentioned that it's, it's so important to maintain that, um, knowing where we are, like where are our own personal reserves in terms of physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever your spiritual practice might look like. Um, where we are, like, are we at 25% today or 50% or 75% or 100% in our reserves when we go to meet with people? Um, and then kind of like, we want to determine what's, what's the minimum percentage in each of those categories that I need to be at before I'm in a healthy enough space to sit with another person as they're processing their story and their mm. experience. When we start meeting with people below that cushion of resiliency, and for me, that's at about 50 to 75% I want to be at, okay? But if we start meeting with people when we're below those levels, then um, we don't have the cushion we need as we're listening to what they're sharing and it will affect us mm. beyond our capacity to cope. And that's what trauma is, except this time the trauma hasn't happened because of something that happened to us personally that was beyond our capacity to cope. It's happened because of our listening to engaging with somebody else's story and experience that was beyond our capacity to cope. And I want to be clear, that's never that other person's fault, right? right. It's as a listener, um, we need to be self-aware of where we are in our capacity. And then it's really helpful to understand how to set boundaries or help guide conversations around that capacity so that exchanges are beneficial and healthy on both ends, right? So say if I am at 25% emotionally, and then I listen to a really difficult trauma experience that somebody feels like it's really time for them to share, um, then I might start experiencing the very same symptoms of PTSD that I can experience from, you know, my, my firsthand traumas. So I might start 
um, noticing that I'm exhausted or that I don't have as much compassion as I usually would, or that my body is acting up. Maybe I've got headaches or aches and pains or digestive issues, or I'm startling easy. Um, Any of the classic trauma response symptoms can happen. So if, if that happens, and sometimes that does happen with us, and I think it's important to like not beat ourselves up over it if it does, Mm. but then the same modalities we would use to care for ourselves with firsthand trauma are the ones we can use to feel better from secondary trauma. We can go back to increasing our reserve saying, okay, like say if that day my emotional reserve was at 25% and I listened to this story and now I'm at like negative 10, right? can say, okay, what would feel the best in order to increase my reserves in that emotional category? What can I do for myself? Maybe, maybe it's journaling. Maybe I need a therapy appointment. Maybe I need some neurofeedback. Definitely, it's important to always have ways to debrief that are ethical. So for my fellow practitioners out there, I recommend supervision. Supervision is a formal arrangement for therapists to discuss their work regularly with someone who is experienced in both therapy and supervision. So the task is to work together to ensure and develop the efficacy of the therapist-client relationship, also provide a safe, confidential outlet for the therapist to process what's been discussed with a particular client. I love going to supervision. I try to do that weekly. And um, that's really helpful, having a place to debrief and um, and receive a little bit of guidance and encouragement um, from another professional. It's very, very helpful. Um, but I would just, you know, keep in mind, like when reserves are low, kind of thinking, what can I do to increase them? Also with clients, sometimes um, if we're not in a place where our reserves are such that we can hear that story. If it's going to be a long-term thing, we can refer out, right? But if it's a short-term thing, we can focus on emotions with people rather than narrative and then schedule a time to do narrative with people, um, to listen to narrative, but focusing on, okay, what are your emotions from this? And then focusing on, um, you know, seeing, you know, what emotional category are those emotions in? Are they primarily fear-based emotions, anger-based emotions, sadness-based emotions? And then working together to figure out ways to balance those out with renewing emotions. So I think there are a variety of ways, but self-care is huge. And just understanding the things that fill us up personally when it comes to you know, our emotional reserves, our mental reserves, our physical reserves, and our spiritual reserves. Mm. I think that's like so helpful for um, the practitioners who are listening to this episode and those who are working on the front line in the anti-trafficking sector. Like, it's so important to hear about boundary setting and knowing what percentage you need to be at in order to, you know, show up fully and take care of yourself. And I think it's also an incredible message for our advocates. Um, we we preach self-care for them um, all month long during the Dress Ember Style Challenge um, to promote, you know, the most sustainable advocacy 
possible. And, you know, that I know it can be difficult for advocates who aren't used to hearing about human trafficking or aren't used to constantly engaging in conversations about fighting human trafficking with their communities and a lot of fatigue and a lot of um, just despair really can, can come from living in this space for such a concentrated period of time. So, you know, some tips that we share for advocates to sustain their advocacy is to know your breaks, you know, know your reserves, know when you need to take a step back. Um, no one is monitoring if you're wearing a dress every single day, if you need to wear sweatpants and you need to stay in bed or you need to take a couple days off from social media or um, you need to take all your photos ahead of time or write your captions ahead of time, um, whatever it may be so that you are taking care of yourself so that you can show up fully to this cause we are wholeheartedly supporting that. Absolutely. I love that so much. Just this idea of knowing your inner voice enough to know what you need and then trusting that and taking action on that. I think that's really incredible. It makes me think too of that quote. I'm I'm going to butcher it and I don't actually remember who, who <laughs> said it, but um, when you're tired, learn to take breaks so that you don't have to quit. Um, and it's that idea of kind of burnout or sustainability in in this work or um, I mean, you can frame it any number of ways, but I think it really speaks to what you're what we're talking about. Um, but I, I love that picture. That idea, I think, is so powerful of like these different categories of reserves and just like being setting a practice of self-awareness to to check in with yourself and like, okay, how am I doing physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all these categories um, and knowing your, uh, how to gauge where you're at in each of those and your kind of threshold, like you mentioned, I think you use the word resiliency, but um, if, if you need to be between 50 and 75% in all the categories or one over the other, or, I mean, I know like I need for physical, like sleep, we were talking about sleep. I need to be like physically at yeah 75% in order to really operate in a satisfactory way. And so that one is particularly important, but they're all important. So just assessing those, I think is so such a really uh, practical way of looking at self-care. Yeah, I found it helpful in my personal life. And then I like to share that with survivors as well. And then the other thing that occurs to me, you know, and you guys talk about taking breaks is sometimes if we are beginning to feel a little burnt out, instead of picking a certain time when we're going to take a break, sometimes we can also pick a time when we're going to engage so that, um, you know, instead of thinking like we have to be on all the time and engaging with anti-trafficking work all the time, we can say, okay, I'm tired right now. I'm going to engage with this from four to four 30 or whatever it is. Right. <laughs> so that we have that certain time and be like, and the rest of today, I am going to just pamper this stew out of myself. Right. So I just love that. Like taking breaks, being aware, and then also scheduling time that we engage. 
Yeah, I think that's super helpful. I know that I will be taking this advice as we move into the style challenge (laughs) into the coming months. Um, I know that like during the style challenge, I am definitely in counseling. Uh, I mean, I'm in counseling all the time, but I'm like not skipping appointments (laughs) during December because it's really important to be able to, um, you know, either air out what's been difficult with having these conversations, what's come up for me, what's been triggering, or just to like fill those um, at least mental, emotional, and spiritual reserves up with my therapist. Um, So I want to continue this conversation about secondary trauma, particularly in the way that survivors experience it um, in leadership positions, in the anti-trafficking movement. And Adding on to that, how can organizations be more supportive and trauma-informed so as to totally avoid this in any way possible? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, Stephanie, I think about my own experiences with orgs and then what I've seen clients go through and friends and colleagues. And um, I really feel like most orgs are well-intentioned, but maybe they're just not aware, right? of what can cause secondary trauma for survivors or what's re-traumatizing for us. Um, And one of the things that I think of has to do with money because most survivors have trauma with money. And um, so when orgs reach out and they ask us to speak or to do some work for them so that they can raise money, they want us to do the work for free, then it can feel like re-exploitation. It can feel, it can bring up very similar emotions to the emotions that we felt while being trafficked and can, you know, just be very re-traumatizing. So um, I kind of, when I'm working with folks, I address this from like two sides and one is for survivors to like not be afraid to advocate for ourselves and um, to let people know what our rates are and then um, to kind of practice what does it feel like if we're going to ask to be paid for our work and our expertise, Um, what are different ways of asking for that, what are ways we can engage in conversations with orgs. And then on the flip side for orgs, um, to kind of look at where your budget is in terms of being able to pay survivors for their work and sort of ask for the amount of work that you currently have the budget for right now. Even if it's not as much as you would like to be able to do in the future. So for instance, like the maximum federal rate right now, which is what most survivors will ask for, for their time is, um, $81.25 an hour, right? For general schedule employees, that is the majority of civilian white-collar federal employees in professional, technical, administrative, and clerical positions, the federal pay cap is set at $176,300 for the entire year of 2022. That breaks down to an hourly rate of $84.76. So as an as as a nonprofit as an org if you have a small budget doing a bunch of hours at that rate may or may not be accessible for your organization but you know 
even scheduling somebody for 30 minutes if you've only got 40 bucks, right? Or an hour if you want someone to come do a talk, or maybe you're having um, some kind of a weekend conference. And instead of asking the survivor to come for the whole weekend, just paying for the one hour that you can afford to pay for their time for. And that way, um, you know, survivors feel that they're being paid for their expertise. And you can feel good too, knowing that with every experience that survivors have with equitable pay and um, equitable work, it's part of our healing. So in engaging survivors in that way, you're also not only avoiding re-traumatization, but also helping us on our healing journey. Um, and so I think that's really important. And then like along with that as well, that some survivors are willing to share their trauma stories and others are not. And also just kind of being aware from a trauma sensitive perspective that you'll also have listeners who may have trauma triggers that intersect with trauma survivors stories. So gauging if and when, um, trauma history is even part of the conversation because like trauma survivors have been through a lot of trauma, right? But what's also really fascinating is how we recover. That's more interesting than the nitty gritty details of a lot of the trauma that we've been through. And we can share on our healing without being re-traumatized. Whereas if we're sharing our trauma story, that's something like we really need to speak with our therapists about, we need to process whether or not that's healthy. And then if it is really set parameters about, um, you know, when and with who and how we're going to share those details. So I think those are the main things that come up for me. Um, other than there's one other thing, which is, um, all of our stories are different. So if there's one survivor who sort of lifted up as the face of human trafficking, <laughs> right, then um, the diversity of stories and experiences and the intersectionality of our identities can't be up front, right? So just remembering that no one story is typical of human trafficking. Mm. They're all different. Thank you, Anne. That was all like, I'm think we're both sort of pausing in silence here because there's so much so much to absorb and you you said it all so well um and I think I immediately started thinking about how we got here in the in the anti-trafficking space specifically like I th I think like you said a lot of well-intentioned folks started organizations started direct service programs and adopted a lot of sort of larger nonprofit industry standards where, yeah, you might not pay someone who's either received your direct services to share a testimonial or, or even, I mean, even on a larger, um, in a larger sense, like the idea of unpaid internships, that that's very standard in the nonprofit world, but examining whether those things are ethical, whether they're in service of, the values and the people that we're serving specifically in anti-trafficking, um, the idea of free labor when it comes to unpaid internships or, again, calling on survivors to share their stories 
for free in order to help you raise money. Um, the ethics of all of that as it relates specifically to anti-trafficking work and some of the like hypocrisy that then comes up as a result. And we, I mean, I'm not saying we're perfect. We have we have had challenging moments in the past where we then have um, and what I would encourage any organizations listening to do is, you know, if you have a reckoning moment, if you're like, oh, we have unpaid internships and what does that say about, you know, our values of free unpaid labor versus a dignified living wage? Um, I think when you have those moments, it's really important to to lean into them and and to your point, like, OK, maybe we can no longer operate at this at one point, Dressenberg had like 25 interns in a semester and like, OK, we can't operate at that at that capacity. Instead, we'll we'll produce less content, but we will offer stipends to, you know, two to four interns and, and see how that goes. And so I think just allowing that reckoning to happen, the reexamination of how we're running programs and how we're looking at dollars in, dollars out, and who we're serving, especially when it ever touches a survivor in this space, I think is is critically important. So I just appreciate everything you said and wanted to kind of add that piece of like the nonprofit sector anti-trafficking for, for anyone who might be listening and wondering where to go from there. Because I think people do tend to tune out. Either they think they're not high enough in the org chart to make significant differences or um it's just too much to imagine because it is it can be an overhaul of how you do things like i said going from 25 interns to two is a huge um it's a huge change um so anyone listening just lean in embrace it changes change can be good (laughs) that was my little my little tangent there um but and I, there's so much more we could ask you. There's um, this has just been such an incredible conversation. I want to thank you for your time and your mental energy that you've invested here. Um, I want to close on the question that we ask all our guests, which is what is one thing you wish people knew about human trafficking? I really wish people knew or understood how different our stories are when it comes to human trafficking um, and that maybe the only thing that they have in common are these elements of forced fraud and coercion. But outside of that, the details of every story are as unique as each one of our lives. And that also in line with that, we take different things from our experiences going forward and our healing And we have so much to offer outside of our stories as well. Yeah, a really important message. And that's something that we're we're hoping to lean into as much as possible at Dress Embers to learn directly from survivors about the ways that we can help them. And in a way that hopefully doesn't require that, well, never requires them, but hopefully it doesn't have to go to a space where someone would feel like they need to share their story. Like, as you said, there's so much more to learn here than just the retelling of a very traumatic experience. So I really appreciate the time. Um, We really loved this conversation and it's so wonderful to know you. And we're so happy that our listeners are getting to know you as well. 
Thank you so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate you and Blythe inviting me to be part of this. And I'm thankful that I've been able to engage in this conversation with you folks as well. I am so thankful for the work that you're doing at Dressember. And I look forward to um, seeing, seeing all the beautiful dresses and positive messages that come up on my social media feed every December. Awesome. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for listening to Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a Dressember podcast. We are all needed in the fight against human trafficking, and Dressember is here to equip and empower you to advocate for the dignity of all people. We host a style challenge every December where people pledge to wear a dress or tie for 31 days. The style challenge provides a fun, impactful way for even the busiest person to engage in this important issue, and it's proven to be a powerful way to raise awareness and vital funding for anti-trafficking work. Since 2013, thousands of advocates have raised roughly $16 million to fight human trafficking from every angle around the world. This year is the 10th anniversary of the Dressember Style Challenge, and we need your advocacy to help make our biggest impact to date. You can join the Dressember community in the fight against human trafficking at dressember.org fundraise, or learn more at dressember.org slash how it works. And remember, it's bigger than a dress.